The presenting sponsor of Food Safety Matters is Food Logic, the leading software as a service solution for supplier engagement, traceability, and recall management. Food Logic is on a mission to connect the world's supply chain by partnering with food brands to implement traceability and advanced technology enabled exchange. Powering over 100,000 food business and supplier locations globally, FoodLogic is ushering in a new era of intelligent food transparency to align consumer protection with business innovation. To learn why brands like Whole Foods Market, Tyson, IPC Subway, Compass Group, and more have chosen FoodLogic, visit foodlogic.com. That's foodlogic.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm here with Barbara Van Renterhem, editorial director, and Tiffany Mayberry, digital editor of the magazine. For today's episode, Barbara sat down with Frankie Honest, deputy commissioner for food policy and response at FDA, to get caught up on, among other things, his latest initiative, the new era of smarter food safety, which he announced last year. I guess now's also a good time to remind everyone that Barbara, Adam, and I will be at the GFSI conference in Seattle, February 25th through the 28th, which is like basically when this episode drops. So we always ask everybody to find us when we're at these conferences, but it'll be a little bit more challenging to find us since we don't have a booth. But Barbara will be moderating a session. And Barbara, can you, what are those details again? Shark Tank. So it, <laughs> it is, yes, Shark Shark Tank. It's a breakout on Thursday afternoon at 4.15, Technology and Innovation. So essentially we have three presenters pitching the audience and two sharks uh, with their technology uh, advancements and the audience can vote who they like best Same. so but no pressure <laughs> this is shark tank like yeah. shark tank light we like to say so um, there we go that, and i guess adam reminded it. me that we could you guys if you're if you're hearing this uh the morning it drops, you can also just email us at podcast at foodsafetymagazine.com and, uh, and we can figure out, you know, how to get together because we like seeing you. We love chatting with you. We want to meet you. We always look forward to seeing you guys. So, oh, and I also wanted to mention that Frank, our guest today, Frankie Honest, is going to be doing the, the closing plenary for the GFSI conference on Friday. So, that's kind of fun. Yep, he's part of that group. He's part of that group. So. That's why we were very, very grateful that that uh, we were able to get him on on the podcast today. seemed seemed just right. Okay, without any, or should I say, any more fooling around, let's get to today's news. Tiffany, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro and Kirsten Gillibrand have jointly proposed a new bill that would allow the FDA new authority to investigate concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, that have been implicated in foodborne outbreak investigations. The bill is called the Expanded Food Safety Investigation Act of 2019. 
The USDA describes a CAFO as a facility that holds up to 1,000 head of cattle at any one time. The impetus behind the proposed bill stems from the 2018 E. coli outbreak linked to romaine lettuce from the Yuma, Arizona growing region that claimed five lives and sickened over 200 people. FDA's Yuma investigation looked closely at an irrigation canal and a CAFO that was located nearby as a potential source of contamination. However, samples collected at the CAFO at the time did not reveal any presence of the outbreak strain. The Congresswomen say that because FDA does not have authority to conduct microbial testing on farms, FDA's environmental assessment report acknowledged limited sampling at the feedlot and was ultimately unable to draw statistically valid conclusions in the traceback investigation. The proposed bill has been endorsed and supported by at least six consumer advocate groups, including Consumer Reports. You know, I had a lot of questions uh, about this particular news piece. Uh, one thing, I didn't know what was the impetus behind this legislation. And were there other outbreaks linked to CAFOs that we don't know about? We kind of looked around and couldn't really find anything. Um, and I also thought that if FDA was having limited access, they could talk to the state of Arizona, they could talk to USDA and have their partners help them get uh, access. But after reaching out to a few people in the know, I learned some really interesting things. One is that um, uh, consensus is that the legislation was requested by consumer groups, not directly by FDA. Um, now, it would be important for FDA to have access, particularly in areas of the country where the beef and cattle industry is significant, like it is in Arizona, because they're state and, and federal partners out there might not want to step on anybody's toes. And so it might have been that FDA didn't have great access. They couldn't imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, if, if you talk to people who work for state departments of health or agriculture in the East, there's a, it, it seems to be uh, that there might be more collaboration um, on these investigations. Um, but um, another point that was made is that in, in the case of Yuma, FDA did identify the outbreak strain in some irrigation water. But even the fact that it's there, that doesn't get to the source. It, it, they haven't done a root cause analysis. And so they were limited in this particular case. But you have to wonder, you know, is it FDA's goal to really get to root cause? And if it is, then certainly having access like this is is really important. Um, the the folks I spoke with didn't know of any other specific outbreak that had been linked to CAFOs, but they are often suspected, um, particularly when they're close to uh, growing fields. So they're always suspect, but I'm imagining that FDA has traditionally had limited access, so they can't really tie things together and haven't been able to in the past. Mm. But Well, in looking over the environmental assessment uh, report done by FDA, it's pretty clear that FDA is responsible, right? <laughs> it's the produce rule. It's their law. You know, it's like it's FDA, and FDA does work with all these partners. Um, 
but in ultimately they're responsible. And if they don't have proper access, then then they need it to ensure public health. Um, I would say, Stacy, that even with unlimited access, they may it's never going to be <laughs> exactly. The, the I mean, getting gun. to root. Co- I mean, these yeah. these are these are huge. Um, areas where where these cattle um, feed. So um, like we said before, unless you're going to test 100% of the of everything, you're, you know, some things you're just not going to find. But but more access certainly would be better. Yeah. But you also have to be able to to do an investigation and to not be impeded in your investigation. Right. Um, So we have a big problem to solve. So I hope we have all the tools available to solve it. All right, Tiffany, what, what's next? A multi-country outbreak of Salmonella enteritidis linked to eggs has been ongoing in Europe for three years. Between February 2017 and January 2020, 15 countries reported over 650 confirmed cases and another 200 plus probable cases. Health officials have since linked another 385 historical confirmed cases to the same outbreak strains. Traceback investigations have identified eggs from laying hen farms from a Polish consortium as the source. In addition, one of the outbreak strains was found in primary production in Germany. A major recall was issued, but the Polish consortium continued to test positive for the outbreak strains in 2018 and 2019. An investigation into the hen production and the feed supply chains did not reveal any origin of the contamination. The European Center for Disease Prevention and Control says that due to differences in capacity for case confirmation, more countries are likely to be affected. So this is a particularly huge issue in Europe, something that has been, you know, going on for several years. Um, There are a couple, I think, interesting points to make about this. First, it's a successful case study of whole genome sequencing that the technology was able to tie outbreaks together over several years. Um, but I wanted to see if there's anything that U.S. egg producers could learn from this. And I reached out to some folks who are in the know uh, with the egg industry. And part of the problem is that um, in Europe, many egg producers don't wash their eggs or refrigerate them. And so sometimes just that societal culture around eggs um kind of throws a monkey wrench into the safety uh, of egg and egg production. Now, the FDA's egg safety rule has really helped reduce the number of outbreaks in this country. So we can point to that as, you know, best practices to share with our partners uh, overseas. Every time pathogens pop up in eggs around the world, uh, U.S. egg producers take notice. So um, it's a huge issue in Europe and... It sounds like they're, you know, making some progress and at least tying some things together. For more background on today's news, visit foodsafetymagazine.com and take a look at our podcast page for episode 66 show notes. Don't forget to also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. Okay, now it's time to hear Barbara's interview with Frankie Giannis, Deputy Commissioner for Food Policy and Response, where he serves as the Principal Advisor to Acting FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn in the development and execution of policies related to food safety, including implementation of the landmark FDA Food Safety Modernization Act. 
His leadership role within the agency covers a broad spectrum of food safety priorities, such as outbreak response, traceback investigations, product recall activities, and supply chain innovation across the full spectrum of FDA-regulated products. Before FDA, Mr. Giannis came from leadership roles within two industry giants, Walmart, where he was for over 10 years, and Walt Disney Company, where he served for over 18 years. Through his career, he's been recognized for his role in elevating food safety standards and building effective food safety management systems based on modern science and risk-based prevention principles. He's become a globally recognized pioneer in using blockchain technology to create a more digital and transparent food system. Frank's experience in food safety arena have also made him an advocate for the promotion of a food safety culture to protect the world's food supply, arguing that science and policy alone are not enough. Advancing food safety also requires an understanding of organizational culture and principles of human behavior. He's authored two books on the topic, Food Safety Culture, Creating a Behavior-Based Food Safety Management System, and Food Safety Equals Behavior, 30 Proven Techniques to Enhance Employee Compliance. Frank is the recipient of numerous awards and is past president of the International Association for Food Protection, or IAFP, and a past vice chairman of the Global Food Safety Initiative, or GFSI. He's also an adjunct professor in the Food Safety Program at Michigan State University, and in 2017 was awarded the MSU Outstanding Faculty Award. A microbiologist, Mr. Giannis received a BS in microbiology from the University of Central Florida and a Master of Public Health degree from the University of South Florida. It's <sighs> a lot. We should have him pronouncing all those bacterial names for us on the podcast. <laughs> He'd have a good time with that. He would do just great. He would knock that out of the park. Well, it's always great talking to Frank. I'm always surprised when I speak with him. He is never afraid of of defending his and now the agency stance on programs that are being implemented. Um, and even if you kind of poke at him a little bit, you know, he, he thinks everything through and has a really strong opinion. And I think FDA is uh, going to make some huge advances under his leadership. Well, Frank's a great communicator, so I think they're, they're lucky to have him. <laughs> so something that, that the agency has long needed. So after a quick break, we'll hear that interview. Are you interested in preparing your business for the new era of smarter food safety? FoodLogic works with leading food retail, restaurant, and CPG brands to capture supply chain data and documents into a central digital hub that facilitates streamlined supplier management, auditing and compliance, product tracking and tracing, as well as automated stock withdrawals and recalls. Ensure your company's keeping pace and protecting consumers by leveraging intuitive food traceability software built on next-gen technologies. Visit foodlogic.com. That's foodlogic, L-O-G-I-Q.com. Hi, Frank, and welcome back to Food Safety Matters. Thank you, Barb. Pleasure to be with you again. Now, the last time we spoke directly was in Nice at the GFSI meeting last year. And I'm wishing I was away from the New England winter and back in France. But but here we are. And there's so much to catch up on. Uh, I don't want to waste any more time. So let's get started. Sure. 
Um, now, your biggest announcement uh, last year was the new era of smarter food safety initiative. So I guess first, why did FDA think it was essential to launch this program? Yeah, Barb, you're correct. Uh, last year, we announced this new era of smart food safety initiative. And the reason we felt that was important was because we think we're at another inflection point in time. Uh, in 2011, Congress passed the Food Safety Modernization Act, which, as you know, was the most sweeping reform of our nation's food law in decades. It was based on the realization that there had been some large outbreaks and we had to modernize our food safety systems in this nation. Uh, if you pause to think about what's happening now, a lot has changed since FISMA was passed almost a decade ago. Uh, in fact, some people believe that we're going to see more changes in the food system over the next 10 years than we've seen over the past 20 or 30. I believe that. And in fact, I often say that I think we're in the midst of a food revolution. And when I ask audiences if they agree, almost all the hands get raised. Uh, think about it. Food products are being reformulated. Lots of reformulation happening. Uh, new foods are being realized. You've heard about cell-cultured meats and other products. Think about how the food system is becoming increasingly digitized. So increasingly, we realized that we had to approach modern approaches for these modern times. And so that's why we launched this new era of smarter food safety. You know, it's really interesting that you bring up cell-cultured foods. Uh, there was a joint article that your agency co-wrote with USDA on this topic that is in our next issue, our February-March issue, which will be at um, the GFSI meeting in Seattle. So, Very good. So you brought up FISMA, Food Safety Modernization Act. So how does this initiative that you launched last year differ from FISMA? What, what are the important distinctions? Well, one important point I want to make is that the new era of smarter food safety is not different than FISMA. It's based on FISMA. So that's an important distinction. You know, it's the realization that Congress knew that we would always have to modernize our food safety approaches. And just like they asked us to almost a decade ago, I believe that the work that we're doing now is completely aligned with Congress's vision of continued modernization. In fact, we like to say that smarter food safety is people-led and focused. It's about smart men and women identifying how we're going to move forward. Uh, it's also about serving consumers, so it's people-led and people-focused, but it's FISMA-based. We have now this wonderful framework with the seven foundational rules of FISMA, and we're going to build on that with further modernization efforts. And so it's less about the modern framework, but more about the how we're going to work with new tools and emerging technologies and new approaches to further strengthen the food system. So at the public meeting in October, um, you mentioned that this is where the hard work really begins, uh, developing a blueprint for the initiative. So what's your vision for that? What's that going to entail? Well, let me give you a little bit of a recap on the work that we've done to get to this point. We're literally on the verge of issuing a blueprint that will outline the work the agency will lead on modernizing and further strengthening food safety for the next decade. Uh, the way we've gotten here is, as you know, the statement that was released last year. We then assembled the brightest men and women within the agency, uh, and there's 
just so much talent here to brainstorm on what are the things we have to do to further prepare. As you know, we held a public meeting that was attended by over 1,300 professionals, 300 live, 1,000 by web, representing all different stakeholder groups. We had state representatives, folks from other countries, regulatory, industry. When I say industry, it wasn't just the food industry. We had tech sector represented, so it was really impressive. We opened a public docket, received comments, and now we're in the final stages of releasing that blueprint. Uh, but some of the things that you've heard us talk about and you should expect to see in the blueprint is a real focus on tech-enabled traceability. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, you will see a section around smarter tools and approaches for prevention, realizing that prevention will always be our focus, but we now have at our fingertips these new tools and modern approaches that could strengthen our ability to prevent. We'll talk about new food models and also look at retail modernization. Traditional retail is a big part of our nation's food system and we know that to bend the foodborne illness curve we have to get better at reducing foodborne illnesses attributed to retail and then something that's near and dear to my heart is this idea of food safety culture and that having rules and policies in place are critical but even more important is, is making sure that people actually comply in a way that makes them responsible for food safety and not simply trying to comply with rules because it's a regulation. So I know you've worked really hard um, kind of collating all the feedback that you got from stakeholders. Have they suggested some really good starting projects that you're excited about? Oh, absolutely. Uh, some of the ideas that we've gotten. Let me be clear. You know, the blueprint will represent the best thinking from food safety professionals from within the boundaries of the agency, but outside the boundaries of the agency. So when you see the blueprint, rest assured that it's a collaborative document that includes ideas from various sectors of the various stakeholder groups that are that are participating. So, but there are some wonderful ideas, ones that excite me very much. And I, I can't share the exact details. You'll see them when the blueprint is released. But I'll try to whet your appetite. And what I like to say is imagine a future where the tools that we use, the approaches that we take are very different. Imagine going into a grocery store and scanning a bag of uh, salad and being able to know immediately where that product came from with specificity and precision and speed. That's the types of things that we want to work on and talk about. Uh, imagine being concerned about the water quality being used in either your facility or on a farm that you're responsible for and having assurance that that water quality is of a high standard because you're checking your handheld device and you're leveraging sensor technology that gives you access to real-time information. Or imagine being responsible for the safety of a supply chain and dramatically improving, let's say 300%, your ability to find violative or problem products in that supply chain because you're using new sources of data and new tools such as machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so those are the types of ideas that you're going to see in the blueprint. Uh, and I think that people that have been involved, they're going to recognize their fingerprints on it when, when they read it. 
And so we're not talking about things that can't be done. We're talking about things that are being done in other business sectors. And uh, they're pretty, pretty motivating and encouraging in terms of a brighter future for the safety of foods. You know, it's great that you're looking outside the food industry proper for solutions. Um, I was talking the other day with Brian Hitchcock from IFT, and we were talking about we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Some of these other industries have these tools available. We just need to learn how to adapt them. So um, that's great to hear that uh, that you're looking to do the same thing. Um, now, globally, what is the impact of all of this work? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, food is a global asset. We know that. So uh, anything that someone does with food will probably have a global impact because food gets shipped and sent to different countries. Uh, I'd begin by saying that we realize that we're at a new decade and we're embarking on a new era smarter food safety. But I would share that I don't think that it's unique to the U.S. or the agency alone. As I talk to my colleagues and brethren in uh, other countries, they're embarking on similar measures. For example, the EU has been talking about smarter regulations for safer food. Barb, last week I was in Ottawa meeting with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, right. and some of the approaches that they're taking are very modern and innovative. Uh, I've seen the same thing in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and uh, many countries. I can't mention them all here today. And so I think as a society and as a community, we're embarking on this new era together. I do hope that the work that we do could serve as a role model to others. Uh, I do believe we'll learn from others as they embark on this journey. And we are very committed, and you'll see in the blueprint, to trying to harmonize our approaches, recognizing that food is a global commodity. But um, I think at the end of the day, what it will mean for the global supply chain is safer food for consumers everywhere, not simply the United States. Right. Now, you had brought up, you know, traceability is, is a huge part of this. Um, can you talk specifically about how it will impact this work in this initiative, will impact uh, FDA's ability to perform more efficient outbreak investigations? And maybe you could use, you know, if all the pieces were in place already, how that might have helped you uh, with the Romaine outbreak, for example. Yeah, I think, Barb, that's a great question because romaine has been uh, an issue on consumers' mind and certainly a real focus area for the agency. And let me just tell you how I think tracking and tracing is helping to advance how we respond. Uh, if you pause to think about it, in 2018, there were two outbreaks associated with romaine lettuce in our country that were uh, significant in size. The one that occurred in the fall uh, right before Thanksgiving resulted in the agency, along with CDC, issuing a consumer advisory, asking consumers to avoid romaine lettuce regardless of where it was grown. And that's because there were cases or illnesses being detected, but we couldn't uh, track back to source uh, in a rapid time. You fast forward one simple year, and unfortunately there was another outbreak in the fall of 2019, but the response was different. Uh, it was largely based on great work done by the state of Maryland. States play a critical role in this nation's food safety net. They did some good work in finding the outbreak strain in an unopened bag of uh, Caesar salad, coupled with the fact that um, 
one retailer in particular and one processor implicated in that leg of the traceback had already started leveraging tech-enabled traceability. Uh, we were able to very quickly trace that led us back to Salinas, California. Uh, and so what you saw in 2019 was a public health advisory to avoid romaine lettuce grown in Salinas as opposed to avoiding romaine nationwide. That narrowed the potential impact of the advisory. And that was because of advancements in tracking and tracing and, and good work done by the state. And so you can see or imagine that in the future we can uh, imagine a scenario where in a traceback event, uh, if illnesses still occur, we could limit that to a particular farm or more narrow region. And so I think tech-enabled traceability is going to allow us to uh, respond to outbreaks very early, uh, protect you know people from becoming ill, limiting the epi curve, uh, and also I think strengthening our ability to do root cause analysis because we can get back sure. to those events much faster. Now, let me not be mistaken. We are very focused on prevention. Prevention is our number one priority. But we do think being able to respond to these outbreaks will be critical, will limit public health harm, and certainly inform future prevention. Sure. And and produce must be making your head explode just because of the implicit challenges with how produce is grown and distributed and, and the commingling that occurs. That's That's got to be the you know, big challenge uh, on your plate these days too. Yeah, you th you, if you think about produce in general, I like to say it plays such an important role in you know the overall healthy diet of, of a consumer's life. But um, by and large, most consumptions are safe. But you know, produce outbreaks are still happening. Sure. Uh, we like to say that one produce outbreak is one too many. It remains a final frontier. The progress has been made. When I was growing up in the profession, we were very focused on dairy products and seafood and meat and poultry. And uh, I think for the entire profession, uh, you know, everybody's eyes have been opened that uh, produce is subject to contamination by a wide variety of sources. And there's a final critical control step. But, you know, we're making progress and I'm convinced that we will continue to make progress in strengthening the produce safety net. Great. Now, if we pivot a little bit, uh, one area that uh, you presented in this initiative that I'd like to hear uh, your thoughts uh, more about are how to regulate food delivery. Um, you know, it's often called the last mile delivery. We have services that deliver for food service establishments and meal kit companies. Um, and, and I've been asking around. Who who should be the target of regulation? Is it the person who hires the delivery service? Is it the delivery service themselves? Is it a combination of both? What are your thoughts about this area? You know, my thoughts are, Barb, that it's an area that we need to be focused on, uh, the ever-changing last mile, and just the way the food system is changing. Uh, you probably know the stats very well. It's projected that one out of every $5 spent on food in this country by the year 2023, which is right around the corner, will be spent uh, on an e-commerce type platform. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the equivalent of thousands of grocery stores popping up all over the country, but uh, they're they're digital, and so and consumers are demanding different ways of receiving that food at home. And so, you know, the way the food system is evolving from around the corner to getting foods to the home continues to change, while 
we'll take a look at what's the regulatory role FDA and states have to play in making sure ensuring these foods are safe. We do believe that you know fundamentally food safety is uh, industry's top responsibility. And so the people that are buying and selling and providing foods in these manners have to adopt the best standard of care to do so. Um, and so we're going to take a look at that in our blueprint. Um, but you know, there's still more work to be done. So you should expect to hear more from us in the near future. Is, is there any low-hanging fruit that FDA is looking at to put into place right now? Well, you know, f- I, I have experience with this issue both from the private sector and now the public sector. And uh, the low-hanging fruit to me are the real obvious things. But sometimes the obvious things uh, have to be implemented with great precision and practice. But they're what I have always referred to as TTTC, which is time and temperature control. If you're delivering foods, you either have to keep them under temperature control if they're cold foods, keep them cold or hot foods hot, uh, or you use time as a public health control. So that's time and temperature. Uh, the third T for me is make sure that they're tamper resistant. And increasingly, people want to make sure that nobody's, uh, you know, touched or implicated or contaminated their food because it's not packaged well. And then the C is prevent cross-contamination. We've seen concerns, at least in one study conducted by Rutgers, that oftentimes food deliveries uh, were mixed with uh, ready-to-eat and and not ready-to-eat products in similar shipping containers. And so there's some fundamental, you know, practical tips that people have to implement, but uh, protect those four things. And I think uh, that will go a long ways. That's great. I, I look forward to seeing what the standards are going to be for that. Um, when this whole topic kind of came on the scene, I reached out to a number of meal meal kit uh, companies, and a few wanted to play and wanted to be part of a panel with me and answer some questions about you know their food safety plans. But I think once they saw my questions. Hmm half of them never responded again. And I think they were kind of shaken up a little bit to think, oh, maybe we don't have all the steps in place we need to. So um, there certainly is a lot of work uh, still to be done in this area. Um, you know, along those same lines, one issue that's that's come up, and I know a couple of years ago at the uh, – International Association for Food Protection meeting, there was a session on um, food that's sold through, uh, you know, as you mentioned, e-commerce sites like Amazon. So if I'm a third-party seller and I want to sell my white fudge-covered Oreo cookies, which are only available for like one week in the fall, and I buy a whole bunch of them, I want to sell them on Amazon, but they get recalled. Sometimes these third-party sellers don't realize that by doing by selling food online that they are part of the food industry and they need to keep track of recalls and and protect uh, the customers who are buying from them. So, um, how do you reach these individuals? Um, that's got to be a big challenge. Yeah, no, Barb. I think you're raising a good point. And, and the last two questions is that. I think when you think about the future of food safety, we're going to have to engage, you know, wide variety of different stakeholders. Some stakeholders that we haven't engaged with in the past. The reality is these practices and processes didn't exist, and so we understand and we'll place the appropriate emphasis in our, 
new era initiative on these new business models, but that will require to ensure we've done outreach to anybody that's involved in the food system, uh, whether they view themselves as a traditional food safety actor or actress in the food system or not. And so small entities that are producing products and now getting on these online platforms and being accessed being able to access a wide variety of consumers are going to have to know their role and responsibility in the food system. So we'll, we'll do that, but we won't be able to do that alone. And that's why working with states and, uh, you know, local partners will be such an important part of the work that we do ahead. Now, is there a plan to uh, devote some resources to training in this area? Yeah, training has to be a central tenet of any food safety plan. Uh, and training in a way that not only shares information but influences human behavior and training that leverages new tools and technologies and platforms. So you should expect to fully see uh, the element of training outlined in the new era uh, as, as well as with new emphasis on innovative approaches. What are some of the other traceability initiatives that FDA is working on? And what progress have you made? Yeah, well... You know, the biggest thing that we've done, in my view, is work to advance traceability under the FISMA mandate, Section 204. I think your listeners will know that there's always been a portion of Food Safety Modernization Act that addresses uh, traceability. It's Section 204, and we are now working to have a proposed rule out by September of this year, so it's fairly close and imminent. I am really impressed with the work done by the folks here at the agency. We've got a brilliant team working on it and, uh, you know, more to come on that because it is a proposed rule. I'm, I'm limited at what I can share at this state other than, sure. you know, it's been very thoughtfully approached. Uh, when I look at traceability regulations in other parts of the food system, I'm generally I would be very candid, unfulfilled. You know, they're generally written one step up and one step sure. back. And I think this uh, approach that we're thinking about is very thoughtful and deliberate and really understanding that for traceability to scale, you have to approach it in a way where you define what are the key data elements that need to be tracked uh, so that you can have interoperability and harmonization, everybody speaking the same language. And not only the key data elements, but what if we often refer as the critical tracking events. And so I think you'll see once the proposed rule comes out, it's, it's very thoughtful. Uh, my sense is that people will respond well. And it'll be a 21st century approach that allows food participants to track and trace foods regardless of whether they're small, medium, or large. And so that's, that's the biggest effort. We have been looking at ways to advance track and trace beyond our regulatory mandate, and we will. And uh, that will set, certainly be a big part of the New Year initiative. It, it sounds like from your uh, mentioning the technology that is emerging and becoming available for traceability, that you believe that end-to-end -end traceability is a realistic goal with all of these uh, new technologies coming on the scene. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, I would say, yeah, that's fair. I would say more than I believe uh, it's realistic. I think it's inevitable. I think the idea of a world in the future where foods cannot be tracked and traced is not realistic. If you look at how we're tracking and tracing all sorts of things, whether it's 
rideshare or airplanes or even things, non-food products that you order online. You probably know when you ordered it, where it's at, and good likelihood of when it's going to show up at your front door. Uh, those same tools and approaches and digitalization is occurring in food. And I think it's inevitable that the food system will eventually become almost completely end to end digitized. It, it won't be done just for traceability. It will be done for efficiencies, uh, for rapid and modern supply chains that can satisfy consumer needs. I think it'll be largely different because we know that information and data will inform and enhance food production for the 21st century to feed a growing population. Uh, and so I think digitization of food is inevitable. And at the end of the day, that will result in tracking and tracing of hmm. foods. It, it seems to me that that's going to require a huge shift in mindset, um, particularly starting with growers um, in various parts of the world. Um, it'll be interesting to see that unfold. Yeah. Yeah. It's already starting to happen, though, and you know, I over the course of my career, I've traveled to farms and growers all over the planet, and uh, I've seen smart devices in small rural areas in various parts of the world. So, you know, having a smart device is more common than a hoe, and in some instances, a tractor. And so, that digitalization at the local farm level is happening. And in fact, I think for some growers and small farmers in developing regions of the world, it's actually a way for them to participate in the global economy uh, and not necessarily needing, needing a lot of capital and brick and mortar. And so uh, I think it's going to be beneficial for food producers of all sizes. Now, here, here's something that just popped into my head. So maybe this is uh, reflects back on my uh, training in pharmacology, but can you envision like a single item of fruit or a vegetable, a tomato, say, um, with a mark on it, similar to what a pharmaceutical company would put on a tablet to be able to trace, you know, that kind of technology to be able to capture data from that single piece of produce. You see maybe something like that happening? I can envision, and it's already happening, Barb, you know, a lot of produce sold in bulk has these little UPC mm -hmm, stickers. Mm -hmm. You've probably seen them. You peel them off right. and uh, some people wonder why they're on there. But there are technology firms that are now providing the level of data encoded in those little UPC stickers uh, that allow you to do traceability back to source. And so I do think this traceability journey will occur over time. Uh, it'll happen more quickly at the case level and large packages. But I do think the ultimate goal is item level mm -hmm. traceability. And uh, I, I can't imagine a day where you could pick up a piece of fruit and scan it to be able to know where it came from. That's great. I'm, I'm looking forward to that kind of merging my, my two roles here. That's great. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to, uh, topic you brought up already that's near and dear to your heart, and that's food safety culture. Um, it's a subject that you've uh, written on extensively. So you have been quoted as saying that a food safety culture is a prerequisite for a food safety management system. And, and how'd you come up with that? Well, I, I, 
you know, I've said a lot of things about food safety culture over my career, and uh, that quote uh, I don't think is unique to, to, to me in terms of thinking that food safety culture is just the foundation of effective food safety management. And the reason I stated it is because after 30 plus years in the profession, one of the things I realized is that you could write great food safety management plans, you could have great HACCP plans, um, you could have the best policies and procedures, but at the end of the day, it required people to do the work. You know, we're a long ways off from the food system being ever totally automated, and um, so people will be involved in food. And so for me, the challenge was, at least in my prior employers, great food safety plan documented, but how do you get 2.2 million boys around the world uh, to make the right decisions every day at the right place at the right time? And so anybody that's tried to lead food safety uh, on a large scale knows that you have to influence organizations, uh, departments, and it, you get to down to the employee level. And so uh, that's why I say that if you don't have a food safety culture, you can never have a good food safety management system because you will never have it just based on good rules, policies, and procedures. You've got to have uh, the ability to influence people to actually execute it with precision. And I think a lot of people that are in, their, in the profession and that have to lead large organizations have concluded the same thing, Barb, and that's why you see you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I would talk about this concept of food safety culture, people thought it was vague and abstract, but now it's almost central or um, just a, a, a given in any food safety conversation that happens. So if there's someone at a company who's never experienced a recall and they've done things the same way for 100 years at this company and they think that the processes they have in place are just fine, how do you convince them that they need to really dig deep and develop that food safety culture in the absence of being forced to by like a major uh, recall. That's exactly what we want to see happen in food uh, establishments and food facilities and on farms all over this country. We want people to have strong food safety cultures uh, because they care about the consumers that they serve uh, and they're responsible for food safety. And I think the, the majority of food producers in this nation uh, believe that and, and operate that way. Um, it's really easy to to strengthen your food safety culture once you've had a catastrophic right. event, whether it's an outbreak or, to your point, a recall. And so organizations have done that, and some of them are held up as examples of strong food safety cultures. And, well, that's fine. I don't want to take any way, anything away from them. Uh, I always say that it really doesn't impress me. What impresses me is those organizations that are strengthening food safety culture because they haven't had a catastrophic event, and it's to prevent the catastrophic event. And so I would say don't get comfortable uh, the food system is changing. Our ability to detect foodborne illnesses is better than ever before. Uh, I believe that food producers are trying to do a good job. Uh, but I do think that, you know, there might be routes of contaminations that have happened in the past and that just went undetected because we didn't have the ability to detect them. And with tools now such as whole genome sequencing and being able to connect these dots, we are increasingly making the invisible visible. And so don't get too comfortable. Know that society is changing, our ability to detect food illness is changing, in that we have to all be focused on accelerating prevention. 
uh, for folks that say, well, well, how do I do that? You know, how do I create a food safety culture? I say, number one is realize that you need to be in this game of strengthening your food safety culture so you can strengthen prevention. Uh, I would say, number two, recognize that food safety culture is not a tagline or a slogan. It, it's, it's an approach to food safety that really emphasizes organizational culture and human behavior coupled with food science. And then number three, I would say, you know, if you have food safety professionals on your team, uh, ask them to work on it. And if not, get outside experts that can help you. But um, it, it's that simple, really, you know, uh, recognize that it's important, recognize that it's more than just a communication plan or a banner or a tagline, and then get smart men and women to start working on it. I love the thought of don't get too comfortable. I mean, things are changing so rapidly that it's hard for the companies that do have a strong culture to keep up, let alone someone who's just trying to put a culture in place. So uh, great advice. Oh, Frank, as we wrap up today, when you came to FDA, uh, it was to head a new office, which is the Office of Food Policy and Response. So could you tell our listeners what your vision is for your office going forward? Yeah, Barb, thanks for that. Yeah, I've joined the agency now, uh, I think, approximately 13 months ago, and I'm still as excited today as I was back then. Uh, I think it's an exciting time to be at the agency. Uh, the agency is modernizing its approaches uh, among very different products that it regulates. The agency realizes we're at an important point in time, and I think this inflection point is happening in various centers across the FDA. Uh, our offices was stood up to address a couple of key areas. Number one is uh, the commissioner asked me to continue to work on leading food safety modernization, and so that's what we're doing uh, by ensuring that we complete our FISMA dates and that FISMA just becomes the social norm day in and day out. It's just the way of doing business in the United States. Uh, we're continuing that modernization with the New Era initiative, so our office is very focused on New Era, and as I said, this is not an, a short-term play. This will be an outline for the next decade. Uh, as the office kind of signifies, it's the Office of Food Policy and Response. Response. So we have responsibility to work in providing leadership and coordination for the agency's response to foodborne outbreaks. Our goal is to prevent them, but if they happen, we're going to try to contain them very rapidly and learn from those experiences to prevent them from happening again. And then I think as many of your listeners will know, Barb, the agency is a pretty big place and we have various centers and offices. And so the commissioner has asked me to play a role in making sure that we address issues in a cross-functional way and so that all of the different centers or offices that might be involved with food are working as one foods program. And so uh, we're excited. I would tell the listeners that uh, FDA will continue to lead protecting the American consumers. And uh, I'm very optimistic that the future of food safety looks bright. That's a very exciting time with all of these changes happening. Uh, thanks so much, Frank, for joining us today. Barb, my pleasure. Always enjoy talking to you and uh, uh, getting the message to your listenership, a very important group. And uh, we're all in this together. I like to say all of your listeners, each and every one of them is working for the same boss I am. Uh, that's the American consumer. So let's 
get on with this work and continue to keep their food safe. Many thanks to Frankie Honest for joining us on the podcast again. For those who may be interested in catching up on his previous interviews with us, check out episodes 32 and 46. And thanks to all of you for listening. We also offer special thanks to our sponsor, Food Logic. To learn how you can prepare your business for the new era of smarter food safety, visit foodlogic.com. That's foodlogic, L O G I Q.com. Please don't forget to send us your questions and suggestions to podcast at foodsafetymagazine.com or post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. As always, you'll find links for all the references that we've mentioned in the episode in our show notes. You can access those in your podcast player or on our website at foodsafetymagazine.com, then find episode 66. Make sure that new and bonus episodes magically appear in your feed by clicking that subscribe button. All right, that's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on March 10th. We'll talk to you then. All right, Tiffany, what, what's next? What's next is a question that Adam's going to have to cut out. <laughs> um, I didn't think to ask about this before we started. I'm sorry. Um, this very first line here, my next story, salmonella and teratitis. Is that how oh, you say Barbara. that? Oh, this is my favorite. So I told Stacy the other day, I, I have switched from my favorite microbial pronunciation of monocytogenes to enteritidis. Oh, <laughs> Is that what it is? That's what it is. Okay, I'm so glad I asked. Oh boy. Okay. Well, let's there break you, it down. Enteritidis. Is that right? Enteritidis. Enteritidis. Enter. So you've already got the R. So enteritidis. Okay. I only have to say it this one time. So okay. <laughs> 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 a multi-country outbreak of salmonella. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That's so 